Humility is underrated. It's also misunderstood. It involves a lack of pride, sure, but humility is more than absence. It's the presence of perspective, security, curiosity. And it pays great dividends, discovery, encounter, courage. The humble value their survival, of course, but they do not overvalue it. And once death ceases to be your greatest fear, life gets more interesting. This is a story about a chasing, patient, omnipotent God who refuses to give up on those he loves. It's a story about what's worth dying for, and it's a story about the influence that kind of devotion has on those who witness it. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Smoke rises over the plain of Dura, gray-black clouds billowing against the blue sky. The fire below churns, glowing red, gobbling up tree after tree, ebony, pine, cypress, rosewood, ash, created by Yahweh, and then chopped, sectioned, split, blackened, consumed by King Nebuchadnezzar. This furnace of his is a wonder, colossal, overkill, some thought during its recent construction. Why would anyone need a furnace this large? They'll soon find out. Nebuchadnezzar watches over the course of days, weeks, as his workers pour liquid gold from the massive crucible into the giant molds. He smiles as they assemble the image, each section of cast gold joined to the next, more gold filling the edges of the seams until they're invisible. Finally, the mammoth structure is lifted into place, its 90-foot length becoming an awe-inspiring 90-foot height as it rises into the air. At just nine feet wide, its proportions make it look even taller. Nebuchadnezzar looks on, satisfied. This should help. Nebuchadnezzar the Great, he's called, King of Babylon, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of the Universe. All of these titles ascribed to him as ruler of the vast empire of Babylon. Though in time, obscurity will shroud the kings who precede and succeed him, Nebuchadnezzar's name will be remembered for ages to come. And yet, life as emperor is burdensome. The ambitious are drawn to the power. Usurpers, assassins, coups, countless men hungrily eyeing Nebuchadnezzar's throne. Survival requires constant suspicion, 
disallows peace. It's as if a sword hangs over the throne, suspended by a single hair, threatening to fall at any moment, an untimely death always looming. And then there's what most never consider, the pressure of knowing you are the most powerful being in the Empire, that you hold the keys to life and death, you determine right and wrong, you hold the world together. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. But with enough unity and submission, there can be peace. Peace for the Empire. Peace for the King. And so Nebuchadnezzar smiles as he gazes upon the giant golden image he's made. This is no mid-level god. This titanic idol is sure to capture the hearts and minds of those who live out here in the province away from his impressive palace in the capital, out here in the reaches of the kingdom where the soil is fertile and rebellion easily takes root. They will see this shining deity and they will drop to their knees, first the officials, then the citizens, all of them, submitted, unified, and Nebuchadnezzar will sleep well. He surveys the image, sunlight glinting off the shining gold, is it a real god? Does this nine-story tall statue exert actual power? Do its ears hear, or its eyes see, or its arms save? Does it matter? Babylon, the monarchy, religion, it's all smoke and mirrors in the end. But if the smoke is thick enough and the mirrors are polished well enough, people believe in magic. I mean, look at it towering over the landscape. Who would not bow before a god like this? Summon all of them, King Nebuchadnezzar commands. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges and magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. It is time to dedicate this extraordinary image. In a matter of hours, horses are speeding across the kingdom, carrying the announcement to hundreds upon hundreds of government officials. Hananiah's hands tremble as he reads the invitation. What does it say? asks Mishael, perhaps, as Azariah grabs the scroll and reads aloud. This is it, they realize. Somehow, these three Hebrews have been able to exist within Babylon's pagan government, excel, even, rising through the ranks, each of them promoted again and again as they demonstrated the integrity, work ethic, and generosity taught to them by Yahweh. It's buoyed the spirits of their conquered people, over the last several years, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah's countrymen have looked to them, and to an even more successful Jew in the capital named Daniel, as proof of Yahweh's truthfulness when he told the Israelites they should seek the good of the city in which they found themselves exiled, because he had plans to prosper them, to give them a future. The Hebrews have started to believe that they can be faithful to Yahweh while living in Babylon. From the looks of this invitation, that belief is about to be tested. 
Nebuchadnezzar waves from his platform at the thousands gathered before his golden image. His herald stands before the crowd and shouts at the top of his lungs, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And then he adds darkly, Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. At that, the orchestra begins to play. Horns blast full and round like the orange of a setting sun. The cotton softness of flutes drapes itself around the plucking of a hundred lyres. Metal-stringed zithers join the chorus, bringing silvery treble to the warmer midtones and lows. Harps then dance their way across the top of the ascending cloud of music. And finally, pipes, buzzing and insistent like the horn's tiny brothers and sisters, adding their voices to the din of sound, calling the assembled officials to worship. And worship they do. Every knee drops to the ground, a wave of obeisance sweeping across the collected throng. Heads bow enthusiastically before the statue's feet, its blank eyes staring out over the newly faithful. Nebuchadnezzar looks on, satisfied. But there are three heads not bowing alongside the others. And though the king doesn't notice this anomaly, others do. Nebuchadnezzar nods to his attendants, who usher a waiting handful of court astrologers into the throne room. May the king live forever, they declare, bowing zealously. Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyebrows, perhaps, signaling for them to get on with why they've requested an audience. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, uh, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must all bow down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down in worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar says nothing. One of the astrologers elbows the speaker, maybe, urging him on. But there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who paid no attention to you, your majesty. The king's cheeks flush, a vein in his forehead swells. Another astrologer pipes up. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. The report drips with the telltale envy of the overlooked. But Nebuchadnezzar cares nothing about what motivated the disclosure. He is enraged by the idea of such blatant insubordination. And leave it to the Jews to cause trouble, their strange customs and unbending allegiance to the god they call Yahweh. It was a mistake to think Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah could be trusted in such positions. Clearly, changing their names didn't expedite their assimilation the way he hoped it would. Time to force their hand. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are shoved into the throne room to find Nebuchadnezzar's face awash with grave concern. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? The three take a breath, perhaps, to speak, but the king does not wait for a response. 
Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Nebuchadnezzar catches his breath. Surely they will see reason. Surely they will avail themselves of this gracious second chance. Surely they will show his other subjects that they recognize Nebuchadnezzar's word as the ultimate rule of law. If they do not, and others follow suit, the sword hangs precariously, the hair straining to keep it aloft. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego meet the king's eyes. King Nebuchadnezzar, one of them begins, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. At that, another of them adds, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They do not know it, but this statement will shape the faith of millions. Nebuchadnezzar, throbbing with rage, has the three Hebrews dragged from the room and orders the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. While the great king of Babylon fumes, the almighty Yahweh watches him. Nebuchadnezzar has legislated the worship of a false god, is planning the gruesome murder of three innocent, faithful men, and continues to clutch at power, no matter the cost. But as he looks at Nebuchadnezzar, Yahweh's eyes are not full of rage or displeasure, but love. He remembers the day Nebuchadnezzar was born the day this child he'd painstakingly crafted in its mother's womb took its first breath, saw the light of the sun for the first time, was fawned over by his teary-eyed mother. Yahweh was present that day, present every day since, bringing Nebuchadnezzar rain, peaches, moonlight. But Nebuchadnezzar could not see him, for decades, the king has lived like a man in a haunted room, wondering at strange coincidences, unintelligible whispers in the night, the sense of something beyond what he could see and touch, something far different than the images and idols that have surrounded him his entire life. He's been courted by the god of the universe, but he does not know it, or has chosen not to see it. It's broken Yahweh's heart, but he will not give up. And the ovation he has planned next may be the one that finally wins Nebuchadnezzar's heart. It will certainly be hard to ignore.
The oaken arms of the strongest men in Nebuchadnezzar's army flex as they lash thick ropes around the hands and feet of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fabric of their robes and trousers flutters in the wind that sweeps across the plain of Dura. Their turbans stand tall atop their heads, undisturbed thanks to their unflinching posture. Even from 25 yards away, the three prisoners can feel the heat of the blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, supervising the execution personally, screams for the soldiers to hurry up and throw the criminals into the fire. Obediently, they scramble up to the main opening at the top of the furnace, while the king and all those who've come for the dedication look on from a distance through a window in the side of the structure. By this time, the fire is raging at thousands of degrees Fahrenheit, almost out of control. And as the soldiers approach the opening with the Israelites, the scalding heat instantly begins melting their metal armor, welding it to their skin. In moments, the enormous Babylonian warriors fall dead. Their prisoners, firmly tied and unable to steady themselves in the commotion, tumble headlong into the glowing pit. Nebuchadnezzar looks on, satisfied. The soldiers were a loss, but an apt punishment for these mutineers is worth the cost. This episode will serve as a powerful example of the kind of thing that happens to those foolish enough to choose Yahweh. But then, squinting into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar sees... No, it can't be. Silhouetted within the blaze are the figures of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not prone, not writhing in agony on their knees, walking around. Impossible. Wait. One, two, three. The king leaps to his feet and asks his attendants, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they reply. Look, Nebuchadnezzar says, I see four men walking around in the fire. He continues, as if speaking to himself, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. What is this? Slowly, his head tilted, eyes trained on the fire, King Nebuchadnezzar moves toward the furnace, drawn to the flame like a moth. He thinks back, surely, to Belteshazzar, Daniel, the Israelites call him, coming to him after his dream, the dream his astrologers said no one on earth could interpret, and laying bare its meaning. The stunned words he spoke to Daniel in that moment ring in his ears. Surely your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. But could the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego do this? And why do this? Why not strike him down for his blasphemy and rescue these three before they were led to the furnace? Why be merciful to him? Why show himself like this? What kind of God would do that? When Nebuchadnezzar can't come any closer to the furnace, he shouts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And somehow they obey. 
As the three stride toward the king, the satraps, governors, and royal advisors crowd around, incredulous. Full of wonder, Nebuchadnezzar perhaps runs his trembling fingers over their skin, their clothing. Not a mark on them, not a hair of their heads singed, their robes untouched. He breathes slowly, deeply, not even the smell of fire on them. Praise, Nebuchadnezzar shouts suddenly. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Immediately on their heels at this reversal, the crowd stares at their king. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. He catches his breath, eyes flicking from side to side as his mind races, and then adds, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Days later, the fires of the furnace finally burn themselves out, and the smoke above the Dura plain clears, the sky shining in untainted blue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are promoted, and have, in fact, served as an example to Israelites and Babylonians alike, though perhaps not in the way Nebuchadnezzar originally intended. Speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, he's sleeping differently these last few days. Perhaps he doesn't hold the keys of life and death after all. And if not those, then what else? Does he determine right and wrong? Will the world fall apart if he doesn't hold it together? Maybe not. And perhaps that's not all bad. Perhaps these days, the head that wears the crown rests a little easier. And what about Yahweh? What about the God who formed that little baby all those years ago? The God who, even now, desires to give Nebuchadnezzar a hope and a future. The Lord of Kings smiles, certainly, as he thinks of the moment Nebuchadnezzar saw him in the furnace and lost his mind. Yahweh will tell that story for ages to come. A spectacular act of deliverance, sure. But more than that, an act of invitation. Nebuchadnezzar's not there yet. But Yahweh will not give up on him.
Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was actually the second most requested story when I gave the Holy Ghost Stories patrons a chance to vote a while back for what they wanted to hear in season two. So I hope you enjoyed hearing this story, and I hope you enjoyed hearing it from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. The more time I spent with the text in Daniel 3, the more it became clear that Nebuchadnezzar is actually the protagonist, the way scripture tells this story. And so I thought it'd be fun to honor that in this episode. Okay, next time I've got something very exciting to share with you, so make sure you're subscribed and you do not miss episode 7 when it drops on Monday, October 11th. I cannot wait to share some news with you. While I've got you, it would mean a whole lot if you'd take a sec right now to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Every one of those is a huge encouragement to me. Uh, Creating Holy Ghost Stories is a pretty solitary thing, and so it's great fun to hear from you about your experiences with this show uh, when you write those reviews. Finally, if you have not signed up for the latest, it's an email I send out personally a couple of times a month with interesting behind-the-scenes stuff related to Holy Ghost Stories, uh, cool things I find around the internet, and snapshots of what it's like to live as a global nomad with my family. Uh, Right now, we are in Croatia, and you may not be aware of this, but I'm telling you, everyone needs a little more Croatia in their life. You can sign up at holyghoststories.org, and there's a link in the show notes. Till next time.